Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Because technology changes, cybersecurity threats change, which means cybersecurity practitioners must keep moving to stay on top of their game. For my next guest, the top 10 skills of chief information security officers will need in 2024. They go beyond technology, though. He's director of the CERT division of the Software Engineering Institute, Greg Tuhill. Greg, good to have you back. Thank you, Tom. Good to be here. So you've outlined 10 skills for CISOs in the coming year, and Lord knows with artificial intelligence and better phishing and yada, 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 things are getting worse. But these are not necessarily technology skills, are they? No, frankly, senior executives expect the chief information security officer to act as a senior business executive first and the technologist second. So making sure that the chief information security officer is working as a senior business executive and translating technology into the language of business is a key and essential skill. All right, but they say that of the CIO, too. So how do they differ? Well, the focus of the CIO and the CISO, or I pronounce it CISO, they're intertwined. So both of them have to be acting as senior business leaders. When it comes to the chief information security officer, the language of the business is centered on risk, driving the business's value, profit and loss, reputation and growth. So is the CIO. But The focus is on capability for the CIO and for the CISO, it centers on risk. Sure. And getting to your list, number one, though, is master AI before it masters you. And this is something Congress is grappling with. Members of Congress think they need to regulate it, but they don't understand it. Agencies are figuring out how to inculcate it for the chief information security officer explain more about how they can master AI before it masters them. Well, you know, here at Carnegie Mellon, we have some of the world's leading experts on artificial intelligence engineering. Folks are actually building out the different capabilities. Even the Army has put their AI innovation center here, co-located with Carnegie Mellon. When you take a look at the rapid advance of capabilities in artificial intelligence, generative AI has really put AI on the top of the map in 2023, replacing zero trust as the buzzword de jour in a lot of places. But understanding the different flavors of AI and how to secure your data in that environment is critically important for CISOs today and into the future. A great example is with generative AI. What do you do if somebody from within your organization puts sensitive information into the prompt for a generative AI, causing a spillage perhaps of personally identifiable information, classified information, intellectual property? Knowing ahead of time how to deal with that is important, but even better is how to prevent it, how to educate your workforce, understanding your data, setting up the labels so that folks know, don't put this into a generative AI prompt because once it goes in, it'll never come out. Yeah, I understand prompt training is emerging as a field of endeavor for people to understand because you you might need a four-page text prompt to get what you want. And at the same time, as you say, you can't put in sensitive information or something that might invoke it. Right. And then further, with a broader sense of AI writ large, 
if you're going to be entering a, a contract with an AI company and using some of their models and the data that those models are consuming, understanding where that data came from, whether it is ethically sourced, do the companies have the rights to use that data? All of that becomes very important, particularly as we see, uh, for example, the European Union has just put together an artificial intelligence act. It comes with fines if you are not using data that you have the rights to use. So there's a lot of questions out there that the CISOs need to invest their knowledge into so they can master AI before it masters them. We're speaking with Greg Tuhill. He is director of the CERT division of the Software Engineering Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. Earlier, you mentioned risk, and on your list is manage risk using advanced metrics and risk quantification. I think that also, though, relates to that idea of improving communications with the board and the C-suite because they know risk is everywhere they look. Maybe this chief information security officer can advise them on a risk management approach because you can't eliminate all risk in this life. Right. And one thing I learned as a combat leader in the military is those who try to manage risk to zero will always end up uh, losing, being disappointed and broke. So, you know, as you take a look at risk management, and we teach a lot of great courses here at Carnegie Mellon for executives and CISOs and, you know, all, all types of students, we've reinforced the fact that as you are looking at risk, you need to be able to actually measure outcomes. And evidence trumps anecdotes is what I put in the article. But as you are, as a CISO, trying to articulate that risk, you need to do so in terms of the language of business. You need to be discussing what the risk is to the value of the business. How does it affect the profit and loss status of the company? Being able to quantify and qualify reputational risk, showing where growth could be impeded I, we're going to lose customers, investors, uh, our trajectory is going to be adversely affected in this particular manner. But being able to quantify and qualify those risks is part of the research that we are doing here at the Software Engineering Institute and sharing with our government and military partners and uh, more information is available at sei.cmu.edu, uh, our website where we post a lot of our releasable information. And the better you can rank and quantify the risk, then the better you can create a reasonable budget and a way to operate the CISO operation so that you can get at the most important risks and leverage your money most effectively. Fair to say? Absolutely. And then further, you're going to be put in a better position to demonstrate your return on investment when you have the data to back it up. What about mastering the art of negotiation? Who do uh, CISOs need to negotiate with? The CISOs need to negotiate up, down, across, and out. So it's really kind of a uh, three-dimensional picture. As a CISO, you need to be able to, we'll start with down. Uh, as, as you are trying to build out your budget and build out your programs, you need to make sure you have the right team in place and the team is all uh, synchronized well with you. As you are uh, looking to Promote your programs like the user education and making sure that folks are following due care and due diligence across the entire organization. You need to be able to have the negotiation skills to convince folks that these are the right things to do 
it's more than just a check the box. It's a, a really not just a security team responsibility to protect the organization, but the whole team. Further, you need to be able to convince folks up the chain, as well as your senior peers, to make those investments in cybersecurity to protect the business and to facilitate its growth and opportunities. And then finally, you need to be working with the ecosystem of partners that you have. Those third-party providers where you're sharing some of your data and having them be the custodians of your data, you need to make sure that you have those solid relationships to get the most value for the organization with the partners that you uh, form. So I view it as a three-dimensional relationship that you're going to need to be able to maintain in all aspects of the CISO job, up, down, across, and out. Yeah, and that idea of negotiating relates to one of your points, which is thinking beyond enterprise IT to the operational control systems, automated manufacturing platforms, all of that stuff, because then you're dealing with a whole different set of people and different operations within the organization from the people that operate the regular enterprise IT and all the users with their smartphones. Yeah, absolutely. And as you take a look at all the different constituencies the CISO operates with and serves, they all speak a different language. So the CISO needs to be able to master the languages of the different constituencies that are out there. And it's really important as we take a look at operational technology, manufacturing technologies, even third-party providers that you are sharing corporate information and data with. You know, those third-party folks that are custodians of your data are an important part of your enterprise. So being able to speak the language with each one of the constituencies that you work with and serve is critically important for organizational success. Greg Duhill is director of the CERT division of the Software Engineering Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more about those top 10 skills for CISOs at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture 
because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. 
you. your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.